You're listening to the golden age of aviation with Breitling, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. This was an era powered by the advances of the jet age, then later inspired by the advent of supersonic travel that saw civil aviation soar to new heights of efficiency, luxury and romance. So far on this series, we've heard from the people who know the history, the personalities and the legends inside out. And today we continue to meet the enthusiasts who have been fascinated by this era and all the storied brands that embodied the very essence of it. This is the Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling, and I'm Chloe Potter. Mid-century aviation has captured the imagination of collectors the world over, who seek out everything from old tickets to tumblers that drinks were served in to the air hostess uniforms of their favourite airlines. One such enthusiast is Philip Keane, whose collection of Pan Am memorabilia comprises over 3,000 pieces. Keane worked for the airline for its final four years of operating in the late 80s into the early 90s and has gone on to become an actor. Our reporter Larry Buell went to meet Philip Keane in the L.A. neighbourhood of Los Feliz. In Palm Springs, that's where most of my collection is right now. I've got two storage units full. Posters, actually a pair of seats from the first class cabin of the 747, and uh, tons of uniforms. Well, you have a pair of seats from the actual... I do. I've got, I have a photo of them that I can share with you. This is a uniform from the 1970s, and this is interesting to me because prior to that, most airlines had stopped hiring men. It was after World War II that the big push for hiring women came in because they were selling, how do I put this delicately, sex. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, women at the time were considered sexier than, than men. And, and it was mainly a lot of businessmen who were flying. Primarily, yes. So there was a reverse discrimination lawsuit filed. I think it was Diaz versus Pan Am in the 1970s. The gentleman won, and so the airlines were forced to hire men at that point. So they had to design a uniform for them. And you can look at the lapels reaching all the way to the shoulders. Yeah, to, really to, wide. To date this yeah. Piece. yeah. Right. And, and kind of... Pants are kind of bell-bottomy. Yeah. yeah. I started with Pan Am in 1988, right out of high school, actually. Well, just a few years out of high school. I had worked in restaurants my entire life. Started working full-time when I was 12. My mother and father had a restaurant. And I saw an ad in the newspaper for Pan Am hiring flight attendants. And I still have the ad. And I answered and got an interview a couple of weeks later. And then before I knew it, I was flying to Miami for six weeks of what we jokingly referred to as Barbie doll boot camp. So we were taught... Why do, do you call it that? We were taught how to sit, how to walk if we smoked, how to smoke, how to carve roast beef during turbulence, how to serve coffee. And we're familiarized with customs and immigrations, formalities and languages, airport codes, all kinds of things. But a lot of it was about etiquette and how to conduct yourself. Where were you based when you worked for them? Initially, I was based in London for the first six months, and then it was so expensive that I decided to move to Amsterdam and commute. So I did that for a year, then moved back to London. And then when they sold the base of operations to United in 1991, I moved to Miami. I was never going to move back to the States. As long as I had a job with Pan Am, I was going to stay in Europe and transfer from base to base and just try the different flying from everywhere that we had. 
when the company went out of business in 91, it was like losing a, my family in a way. We were a very close-knit group in London. There were only 250 flight attendants, so we knew everybody. And the world at that point kind of closed up for me because I had access. I didn't have a car, but I had access to an airplane. So you've been collecting all of this memorabilia for, what now, 25 years? Exactly, yes. I started collecting in 91 when we went out of business. My first item was a watercolor ad of Mary Martin, and she was thanking the captain for a beautiful flight across the Atlantic. And this, the title of the ad was How Peter Pan Flew to Paris. And my collection consists of about 3,500 items, from matchbooks and uniforms to actual pieces of the interior of the aircraft. It seems as though I have a, uh, a sonar. I can pick out the blue, the Pan Am blue specifically, and I've kind of led to it. Tell me a little bit about some of the uh, memorabilia we see here. Uh, here's a, a cool-looking plane, a basic replica. Of course, it's a model of the 747-100 series. You can tell that because there's only three windows on the upper deck here. Later versions had multiple windows, and it was a little bit longer configuration. But this really changed the industry, along with the 707. So this is a little piece that probably would have been in a travel agent's office to display for people to get an idea of what they might be in for. And I've got a couple of menus here. These were watercolors originally done by the artist Don Kingman. He did a lot of illustrations for Pan Am. And you can take a look at the inside of some of the things that we offered in first class. Oh, very cool. It's in script. There's champagne. There's choices of wine, cognac, liqueurs, port, cocktails, aperitifs. You can't really even keep all of these on board anymore. No, I think things are pretty limited nowadays. You get a little plastic bottle and a glass with ice. And if you just look over to your right, there's a silver cocktail shaker. And that's how things used to be done. So they would put ice in there and then mix your drink for you, each one at a time, and then pour it into a crystal glass. There's a silver coffee service over there. So everything was done with the idea of French service in mind. Now, when you say they did that, were you doing that? Or were you working for first class? Yes, the positions, the, the duties would vary from flight to flight, and you would bid for positions on, on that. But as a purser, you were either in charge of the first class section or the business and economy section combined. Cool. Okay. So so this these illustrations mm-hmm. are on this menu is from 19, it said 1957? This aircraft would have been from 1957, so it's memorializing the different aircraft throughout the decades that Pan Am helped to design and oh, engineer. And then we have some smaller ones that I can share with you if I can find them. That was for the business class section. So even with that, there were still a number of choices available to the passengers. So this would have been from what year? From well, while you were working there. This was from the 1970s, but we still had a similar situation going on. So we have mushroom omelet, grill. Not sure what grill garni is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lamb chop. Yes. Okay. Cool. And that would have been for lunch. Yes. Yes. Very cool. All right, what else are we seeing here? I'm looking at this. It's fair. Oh, it's like iron. Solid bronze. Um, They're cast door handles, and I think they weigh about 40 pounds. A door handle for the exterior door? Probably for an interior, given the the age and the patina on this. It may have been on a set of glass doors in what they call the Clipper Club, which is a place where businessmen and first-class passengers would be able to go to prior to the flight or afterwards to conduct business, do some paperwork, relax, have a meeting, have a cocktail. My love of Pan Am extends to 
entertaining. So for my 50th birthday party, my husband and best friend threw a Pan Am themed birthday party for me. So I have some photographs here with some of the things that we did. She replicated one of the menus from first class. So this is what we what we served, and this would have been definitely what we would have had in first class, the Chateaubriand, which I used to carve to order seat side, and we would cook it on board the aircraft. Dessert Cherry's Jubilee, yes. doesn't that require a fire? It does, and when it was first introduced, when we had the dining room on the upper deck, a flight attendant that I used to work with got into lots of trouble for lighting them on fire. There's so many things in here. I have a giant sign in the back. It's about 20 feet wide and four feet tall. Pan Am spelled out in plywood and painted in Pan Am colors. It was found on eBay and it was in the basement of a guy's house in Pittsburgh. So I had it loaded on a flatbed and shipped across the States. Did your love of the brand come while you were working before you started or after? I was aware of the of the Pan Am brand and legacy right before I started, and that's part of the reason that I chose them to apply with. Once I got there, I started drinking the Kool-Aid, and I just I was so fascinated with the history of the company and all the accomplishments that I fell in love with it and worked as much as I could all the time. And whenever I had time off, I would just get on a plane and go someplace. And that's what we could do that at the time. I still have blank ticket stock, and that's what we would do. We would just ride in the destination where we wanted to go, and if there was space on the plane, we got on. You can't do that anymore on airlines as a flight attendant. Pretty much no, because good luck finding an empty seat. And everything is done by seniority and priority boarding. So that's it's really hard to do anymore. Why do you think uh, Pan Am has become such a defining airline of the golden age of uh, aviation? I think Pan Am became such a defining company and the imagery of Pan Am because it was instrumental in helping to create the aviation industry. From the invention of and retooling of aircraft and the demands that one trip made of the different companies to make them safer and faster and better, more luxurious, and then at some point changing that so that everybody could afford to fly. At one point, the Pan Am Globe was the second most recognized symbol in the world next to Coca-Cola. And that's due to a great marketing campaign. They were branding before anybody really knew what the science of that was. And no matter where in the world you flew, there was always a Pan Am office. There was a, a great poster of the Antarctic, and it said, it's easier to tell you about the places that we don't fly. Is there an item or two that really kind of sum up everything about uh, your experience or their legacy? I don't know if there's a single item that would sum up my experience or the legacy of the company, but... There are a couple of items that I'm still looking out for. One of them is the uniform that was used in the Pan Am series. I know they had to replicate that, and that one's a really hard one to find because at the time when a flight attendant would retire or passed away, they were no longer working for the company, they were required to turn the uniforms back in. So a lot of them were destroyed or given to homeless shelters. So uh, that's a rare item that you're looking for. Are yeah. other collectors looking for that as well? My biggest competition is a friend of mine, Kelly Cusack, who also worked for Pan Am, and he's in New York. He has about 12,000 items in his collection, but as he will tell you, a lot of those are stir sticks and matches. So, But I know he has, he has one of those uniforms that's complete and in great condition, and I'm on the search for that. Do you ever think that we'll uh, return to this uh, golden area of uh, aviation? 
I don't know that we'll ever return to this era of aviation, this golden era of aviation. I mean, there are a couple of carriers like Emirates and Qatar who have these private suites and butlers and gold-plated fixtures. And for those that can afford that, I think it's a, it's a wonderful experience. But it doesn't seem like people are interested in doing that kind of thing anymore. They just want to get where they're going. And everybody has a personal device now. They can watch movies on their phone or their tablet or they're working. They just don't want to be bothered with the idea of having to get someplace anymore. So, but that was part of the, the allure is that you got on board this aircraft and you were treated like a king or a queen. And you know, once you got there, you were rested and relaxed. And at least that was the idea. Thanks to Larry Buell for that interview. To Italy now, with its distinctive green, white and red tail fin and iconic lettering as logo, Alitalia boasts one of the world's most iconic liveries, one that is also seen as being quintessentially Italian, which is ironic as it was designed by an American. Despite the ups and downs of this flag carrier's fortunes over the years, the Alitalia's fleet still very much waves the flag when it comes to country brand identity, argues David Pleasant, Monocle's Rome correspondent. Try and picture the classic image of an ideal airport in your mind's eye, where a row of neatly aligned tail fins stretches into the distance like a United Nations of flag carriers. This image would surely include the red, white and green of Alitalia. It is a sector that is prone to change, with budget or regional airlines vying for passengers. And in an age of websites and adverts plastered onto airplanes, Italy's national and more often than not nationalised airline stands out for a livery that has consistently fed better than its rivals. Perhaps I'm being an airline nostalgic and I should declare that I follow various Alitalia fan groups and have a secret collection of in-flight paraphernalia. In fact, I might as well admit it, I'm a bona fide Alitalia enthusiast. There, I've said it. But unlike fans of other retro classics of the skies, I don't have to spend hours online or at flea markets to replenish my collection or to satisfy my thirst for good airline design. I simply have to go to my nearest airport, which happens to be Alitalia's hub, Leonardo da Vinci here in Rome, more commonly known as Fumicino. Well, if we're going to be real geeks, let's just use the IATA code, which is FCO. If we try to be a little more objective, it is surely this sense of permanence. The fact that Alitalia design is just so recognisable and has fundamentally changed so very little in nearly half a century that makes it so successful. This story begins in 1967. Linee Aree Italiane, the Italian Airlines company, had cleverly given itself the portmanteau of Alitalia, Ali being the Italian word for wings, creating a punchy Wings of Italy name that is already a tagline. The company decided that it was time to modernise its identity. Its winged arrow logo, although charming, was looking increasingly out of place in the jet age. Alitalia called for a rebrand that spoke of professionalism, modernity and that was unmistakably Italian. It's perhaps fitting that often an outside eye is needed when it comes to nation branding and graphic designer Walter Landor, who set up Landor Associates in San Francisco in 1941, is a case in point. 
Landor was to go on to design some of the world's most iconic airline brands. British Airways, Cathay Pacific, Singapore Airlines and Thai, to name but a few. But Alitalia was really his first masterpiece of the skies. With that punchy, attractive name, Landor was able to create, quite literally, an A-grade design. The A of Alitalia was boldly emblazoned onto the tail fin. In fact, no other airline has a tail fin design that is so totally integral to the name and brand. A heavy-set, stylized Helvetica font exudes a welcoming nature with a modern refinement. Exactly how Italians wanted to see themselves. Further grace came from the sporty but chic racing green stripe that followed the line of the airplane windows along the length of the fuselage before smoothly joining up with the bottom of the tail fin's elegant big A. Landor's livery was launched in 1969 and was an immediate success. Alitalia became the symbol of a modern, booming Italy. However, by the turn of the millennium, the airline itself had become a loss-maker and has very rarely been able to support itself ever since. But the efficiency and style of Landor's livery remains. 2015, in fact, saw Landor Associates modernise Walter's inception. Gone is that green stripe. For the world now, simple equals sophisticated, says the lead designer. As someone who owns several scale Alitalia models, with green stripe included, I have to disagree entirely. Perhaps nothing expresses the Alitalia heyday more than the 1980 musical number which features Italy's very leggy, blonde diva Raffaella Carrà doing the Paso Doble on the wing of an Alitalia Boeing 747, whilst singing that old Italian crooner, Volare. Sometimes I like to imagine Raffaella still there dancing on the tarmac when my plane is taxiing at FCO. I did warn you about nostalgia. For Monocle, in Rome, I'm David Pleasant. Our next report lands us on the east coast of Canada at Gander International Airport. On September the 11th, 2001, as the US closed its airspace in the wake of the terrorist attacks on New York and the Pentagon, this airport had to swing into action. Gander International Airport was once one of the busiest refuelling ports of call in North America before jets could cross the Atlantic non-stop. On 9-11, it came back to life as rerouted flights were forced to land there, nearly doubling Gander's population. It wasn't the first time Gander International Airport had been at the centre of events. The arrivals hall at Gander in its heyday in the 1960s became known for its celebrity visitors. Louis Armstrong, Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra are among the stars said to have serenaded passengers in the terminal during layovers. And now it stands as a testament to mid-century design. It's now a shadow of its former self and there are faint rumours that it may one day be considered for demolition. Monocle's Thomas Lewis reports now on the golden age of Gander International Airport. On the northeast tip of North America, on an island called Newfoundland, there's an airport. It used to be one of the biggest airports in the world and next to it is a town called Gander. My name is Jane Severs, and I'm the executive director of the Association of Heritage Industries, Newfoundland and Labrador. Gander really began as 
Well, initially it was nothing. It was known as Hattie's Camp, and it was just an abandoned sawmill along the Newfoundland railway line. During the early days of transatlantic transportation, the British government was looking for a spot where they could further develop transatlantic air flight, and they chose Gander. So they built this massive airport. At the time, it was the biggest runways in the world. So they finished that in about 1938. 1939, World War II breaks out, and very quickly, Britain began losing aircraft. And Canada, the United States, were building aircraft. They needed to get them across to Britain, and Gander became the landing spot for aircraft that were en route from North America to Britain. As a result of that, Gander grew into this enormous airport and basically a town. Newfoundland was more than a country. It was a way of life. In Newfoundland, we talk about rural communities being outports because they were outside of St. John's, the capital, and they were built around ports or local harbors. But Gander really was always an airport. The airport was built first, and then the town literally grew up around the runway. And there are stories of kids actually having to, to cross the runways to get to school because literally the town was on top of the airport. And then after the war ended, all the technology that had been developed for transatlantic flight was converted to commercial flight. And because Gander was there, because it was the last jumping off point across the Atlantic for North American flights and the first landing point if you were coming from Europe, it became known as the crossroads of the world. And anybody traveling pretty much across the transatlantic in the post-war period stopped in Gander. Passengers for flight 26 to Gander and Montreal, will you please have your embarkation slips ready and proceed to the exit door for boarding the aircraft. The International Departures Lounge at Gander was built pretty shortly after Newfoundland joined Canada. And Canada saw this as an opportunity to build a space where visitors who were arriving in the country for, you know, for their first glimpse would get the impression of Canada as being a forward-thinking, cutting-edge, modern country. And so an incredible amount of money for the time, I think about $3 million was spent, creating this space which would wow people. And so every kind of well-known or cutting-edge designer of the day was employed in creating the furnishings. I mean, you have Charles and Ray Eames, you have Robin Bush, Ernie Jacobson. There was incredible terrazzo flooring, and they commissioned large-scale, really impactful contemporary art. So they had Canadian painter Ken Lockheed created this enormous mural, I think it's about 70 feet long, called Flight and Its Allegories which today people recognize as an incredible piece of Canadian art. At the time, it was incredibly controversial because it was modern. They really took a lot of risks in creating a super modern space. And it created an impression on people. And from a local's point of view, it was a place to see and be seen. In the 1950s, 60s, airport security like we know it today was non-existent. So when you talk to people of a certain age in Gander, they will tell you stories about the families 
going to the airport and sitting in the terminal watching people come and go. And there would be politicians, world rulers, celebrities. Einstein went through there, the Beatles, Fidel Castro. Pretty much anybody who was traveling the transatlantic route was stopping through Gander. And it created this sense that Gander, that was in the center of Newfoundland, was really in the center of the world. One gentleman told me the story. He was in the terminal and Muhammad Ali's and his wife were there and she had a problem with his glasses. And the gentleman from Gander, you know, sat down with, with the Ali's and, and fixed her glasses and ended up having a long conversation with them. Like, it wasn't just like people said, oh, look, there's someone famous. Local people were having kind of these personal interactions with kind of the who's who of the world. And because of the people moving through, it gave Gander a flavor and a sense of place which was totally different from Newfoundland. The store owners were going to the fashion capitals of the world to buy their inventory because the clientele coming through were looking for that kind of stuff. There's a story of Frank Sinatra going out into Gander to buy his daughter a skirt. It just seems so bizarre today when I think most people think of Newfoundland as kind of being a bit of a backwater you know, in terms of world culture. I mean, we've got our own fantastic culture, but we may not be cutting edge in relation to New York or London. But in the day, Gander was kind of, it had its finger on the pulse of the world. It was really during the later 60s when jet technology became more developed. Within a very short period of time, it was no longer necessary for jets to land and refuel. They could make the trip from New York or Toronto or wherever just non-stop. For a while, Gander Airport turned into a, a bit of a ghost town. But as always happens with Gander, it seems to reinvent itself to fit the world it operates in. Eventually, Gander became an essential stopping point for aircraft from communist countries who couldn't fly through U.S. airspace. And so what you had was all these planes going from Havana to Russia, and they were all landing in Gander. And so traffic picked up again, but it was a very different group of people coming through. And for a long period of time, Gander became the defection capital of the world. And there was a joke that the fences around the Gander runways were to keep the moose out and the defectors in. It's had a really fascinating history that's mirrored the changes in the world around it. Come back again next year. You're always welcome in Newfoundland. On this series so far, we've discovered all sorts of fascinating facts that form part of this legendary period of aviation. For a bit of fun before we end today, we've enlisted the help of the writer and master of trivia, Mark Mason, to run through some of the quirkiest in-flight stories. Sometimes aviation gave rise to great cultural moments. In late 1966, Paul McCartney had been on holiday with Mal Evans, who was the Beatles' roadie, and Jane Asher, who was then still McCartney's girlfriend. They were flying back from Kenya, and they were just having a chat, and McCartney was getting to the point where he was annoyed about the Beatles getting attention all the time, and he'd started to have the idea of some anonymous, or pseudonymous rather, band, where they could not be the Beatles, they could be something else. 
And they were talking about that, and at the same time they got their food in the meal, and there were little sachets with S and P written on them. And of course you can guess what they were, but Mal Evans had one of those moments when we're all a little bit blank, and he went blank. He said, what's the S and P? And McCartney went salt and pepper. And as he said it, that's where he got the idea for Sgt Pepper. That's the name of the band that came to him. McCartney always liked his, uh, his flying. The first time ever that he met Frank Sinatra was on a flight. And he was so overcome with excitement at meeting the legendary Frank Sinatra that he blurted out, well, oh, just wait till my stepmother hears that I've met you. And then was instantly embarrassed that he'd been uncool at meeting a celebrity like that and was really sorry and just felt embarrassed generally. And Sinatra calmed him down. He said, don't worry, kid. I was exactly the same the first time I met John Wayne. Musicians are obviously famous for flying around. B.B. King, the legendary blues guitarist, was so worried about his guitar and wanted to take such good care of it that his guitar, his big Gibson guitar, which was always called Lucille, he went through a few over the years, but he always called them Lucille because that was the name of a woman that started a fight between two guys at a B.B. King gig back in his early days. But then when aviation came along and he was flying around with, with Lucille, he started to call the guitar Mr. Guitar because he booked it in to the flight. He would pay for a seat next to his so that Lucille, or Mr Guitar, as the guitar was often billed on the check-in details, could sit next to him and Mr Guitar could be nice and safe on the plane. One of my favourite stories of pure vindictiveness on a plane comes from Orson Welles who was once forced onto a plane. He was almost literally kidnapped by the film director, Vincent Corder, and Corder's son, Michael, because Wells had signed a contract with them and was refusing to honour it. So they literally went, grabbed him, and forced him onto a flight. And Wells reluctantly agreed that he had to go and do what he was being paid to do, had been contracted to do. So he was sitting on this flight, on the seat between Vincent Corder and Orson Welles, Vincent Corder had put this huge basket of delicious fruit that he'd just bought. Vincent Corder put the fruit on the plane seat between him and Orson Welles and then nodded off. And he woke up a little while later to find that Welles, who was still furious about the position he was in, had deliberately taken a single bite out of each item of fruit in the basket, so rendering the whole lot inedible just to get his own back on Vincent Corder. July 13th, 1985, the day of Live Aid, and those of us that can remember it will know that Phil Collins played at the London gig at Wembley and then flew across the Atlantic on Concorde, which, of course, back in those days, um, you could go back in time because it took three hours to fly across the Atlantic and the time difference was five hours. So it went back in time and it enabled him to go and play at the Philadelphia gig as well. And so he's on the plane, sitting there, going across the Atlantic, and he hasn't noticed the woman who's sitting a few rows away from him on Concord because she's not made up. But she's heard what's happening and she comes up to Phil Collins and only when she comes up to him does it dawn on him that it's Cher. And she was deliberately keeping herself very low-key. And heaven knows what Cher had been doing for the previous few weeks, but she had not known that Live Aid was going on. She came up to Phil Collins and said, what's all this going on? And he explained to her about the gig. And she realised that the gig was going on in Philadelphia later that day and she said do you think you could get me onto the gig? And Phil Collins went, you don't need me to get you on, you're Cher, just go and have a word with me. He said she went to the toilet, she came back from the toilet, she was Cher, the makeup was on, the hair was done, she got some new clothes on, and he said he went and did his bit of the gig and then he was watching at the end of the American leg of the gig and there she was, she had managed to get herself onto Live Aid. So were it not for Concord, Cher would not have been on probably the most famous gig of her life.
that brings us to the end of this episode of the Golden Age of Aviation with Brightling. To find out more about the programme, you can head to monocle.com or subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud and all your other favourite audio sources. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and I'm Chloe Potter. Join us again in two weeks' time, but until then, wherever you are and wherever you're headed next, bon voyage. Thank you.